Thank you, Paul and Alicia, for being uh, ready in season and out of season to step in there. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we, we come to you tonight. We ask you to open your word to us. Father, send your Holy Spirit that he would teach us all things. Lord, we ask you for your presence. Father, we pray these things in Christ's mighty name. Amen. We are... Uh, Begin chapter 24 of the London Baptist Confession tonight. And we are, uh, we'll begin in paragraph one. Get on the screen. There's some handouts if you would like one. God, the Supreme Lord and King of all the world, hath ordained civil magistrates to be under him over the people, for his own glory and the public good. And to this end hath armed them with the power of the sword, for defense and encouragement of them that do good, and for the punishment of evildoers. This is the doctrine on the civil magistrate, on civil governments. And that would include... um, our president, uh, a mayor, a, sh- a local sheriff, police department, but the civil magistrates. And the first thing that we should take away is that it's God who divinely appoints them. In fact, in Daniel 2.21, it says that he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Think about how God used Nebuchadnezzar. He used him basically as his his instrument to bring judgment on nations, and when God was done with him, God brought judgment on Nebuchadnezzar. He just raises him up, uses him for his purpose, sets him down. And so what we want to take away from this doctrine is that it's God that ordains magistrates. He puts them in place. And why does he do it? Who knows why he does it? Tells us right here. Why? A guess. Mike. His own glory and the public good. Yeah, his own glory and for the public good. Calvin says if you don't have divine order in the government. It's, it, he's a divine, he says civil governments are almost as, important, almost as important to us as the air that we breathe and the bread that we eat. Pretty significant statement. God raised up Pharaoh for his own purposes. And empires come and go. Who, anybody want to guess the, the, the wealthiest city 100 years ago in the United States? You can't answer it. You probably, you've heard me say it before, Joel. Detroit. Detroit. Now they've torn down the buildings and making cornfields out of the buildings. But the British Empire 100 years ago. The sun never set on the British Empire. Everywhere in the world it touched. Not so much today. Or the great Roman Empire, the 
Alexander the Great in Greece. Empires come and go. God uses them for his own purposes. And so when we think about the civil magistrate, it doesn't matter how they got there. Did they get there by birth? They were born into, they were a king, and they were a king's son or a king's daughter, or uh, by appointment, by somebody of higher authority. Pilate, you recall Jesus, he's saying to Jesus, um, don't you know who you're talking to? And Jesus said, no, you don't quite understand where your authority came from. Ultimately, it came from God, but it also came from a higher authority than Pilate, who was just a governor. So it doesn't matter what form of government you, were, you happen to live under or in the midst of. Was that governor or was that president or was that mayor duly elected by a free people? See, that's just the secondary means. Ultimately, though, it's God that put them in that place. The means of how they got there is inconsequential. We have to look through the authority to say that it was ultimately God who put them in place. If you turn with me to Romans chapter 13 and verse 1. And as you're doing that, I want to read something to you. I don't often go to Calvin, but um, in the Institutes, he has a, a, a couple of chapters on, on civil government and the magistrate. And he says, The Lord has not only testified that the office of magistrate is approved by and acceptable to him, but he also sets out its dignity with the most honorable titles and marvelously commends it to us, to mention a few. Since those who serve as magistrate are called gods, let no one think that their being so called is of slight importance. For it signifies that they have a mandate from God, have been invested with a divine authority, and are wholly God's representatives in a manner acting as his vice regents. This is no subtlety of mine, but Christ's explanation, if script, in Scripture he says, he called them gods as to whom the word of God came. John 10.35. By the way, if you look at John 10.35, he does. He calls these magistrates gods with a small g. What is this except that God has entrusted to them the business of serving him in their office? And as Moses and Jehoshaphat said to the judges whom they appointed in every city of Judah of exercising judgment not for the man, but for God. They're exercising judgment not for the man, but they're doing it on behalf of God, in God's place as his delegated authority. To the same purpose as what God's wisdom affirms through Solomon's mouth, that it is his doing that kings reign and, and counselors decree what is just and that princes exercise dominion and all benevolent judges of the earth. This amounts to the same thing as to say it has not come about by human perversity that the authority over all things on earth is in the hands of kings and other rulers, but by divine providence and holy ordinance. For God was pleased so to rule the affairs of men 
inasmuch as he is present with them and also presides over the making of laws and the exercising of equity in courts of justice. So what does Paul say in Romans 13, 1? Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinances of God or the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Well, you say, okay, that's great. If it's a godly ruler, what if it's not? Who is Paul writing to in Romans? I'll give you a clue. (laughs) Who? Yeah, who happened to be some of the rulers at that time in Rome? The Caesars? Uh, can you think about Nero? Was, uh, no, Nero was an upstanding guy, right? Nice guy. You want to have Nero for your neighbor. He used Christians as lanterns at night. He'd light them on fire and use them as lanterns to entertain his guests. And yet Paul is saying, all authority comes from God. Hodge says this, he says that some have mistakenly thought that true authority comes from the consent of the governed or the will of the majority. This is where we are today in America, that, well, their only reason they have authorities is come by the consent of those who duly elected them. But that's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that all authority, no matter how they've come to power, is ordained by God. And we ought to have a healthy fear of those and looking through that delegated authority and ultimately seeing God in that delegated authority and hold the office in high regard, recognizing that it's God's mercy that we have civil magistrates and authorities. Think about David. You know, as he's being pursued by Saul, he wouldn't lift the, he had an opportunity to kill him, but he wouldn't lift his hand against God's anointed. Or think about Daniel or Nehemiah serving heathen kings. Look at Daniel's relationship with the king, King Darius. You know, he had a, you know, such a relationship with the king that the king, even after he got tricked and putting him in the lion's den, you know, Daniel was was your God who who, who you serve? Was he able to deliver you? Oh, long live my king! My God was able to deliver me. And Darius's response was, he is the living God. You see this relationship between Daniel and the heathen king. See, all authority is of God. Think about Paul's response. He's in front of the Sanhedrin. They're bringing him up on charges. And, um, and he goes after the, the high priest. And he rebukes him. He calls him a whitewashed wall. And somebody slapped him, and he, he didn't realize. They said, how dare you speak to God's anointed? 
He says in Acts 2, 23.3, Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, Oh, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Here again. Now this is not a civil magistrate. This is a... Uh, priestly authority in the temple. But you still see Paul's high regard for authority. Now, you don't have to look far. Last week, I mean, you could take your pick, whether it's an op-ed in the New York Times, whether it's uh, resist movement, whether it's uh, you name it. We begin to see forms of anarchy and coming against authority, whether it's a president that you like or a president you dislike. As Christians, we are to recognize that all authority has come to us from the hand of God. And the second part of of paragraph one is that civil magistrates, God puts them there to, to reward good and to punish evil. What does... Peter tells us in, in, in 1 Peter 2.13, he says, Submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. And we saw also in Romans 13, that they bear the sword, and we are to fear the civil magistrate, again, whether it's a local sheriff, it's it's a mayor, who, who, whomever it is that's in a place of authority. Fear them, because they wield the sword. And rulers will be held accountable. Those that God puts in those, to whom much is given, much will be required. They will give an account as to how they ruled. They will. But God does this, again, for his glory and for the public good. God is a God of order, and so when you have an orderly society, well-governed, it brings glory to God. Hey, when, when the righteous rule, the people rejoice. This guy's a friend of mine. I have his set of comments, because we're not Presbyterian. I, this is his commentary. He's got a whole set of commentaries on, uh, some of you know Joe Moorcraft. On, on the Westminster Catechism. And uh, he has, I don't normally like to read long things, but there's a couple of things I, I can't say it any better than he says it. And so here's what he says about civil government and magistrates. He said, the God-appointed function of civil government is to terrorize evildoers and punish them by enforcing the laws of God. That's the God-ordained purpose of civil governments, is to terrorize evildoers, to make the civil government effective in its responsibility. God has placed the sword in the hands of the civil magistrate to protect law-abiding citizens by administering God's wrath on the criminal lawbreaker. Romans 12.19 tells us clearly that vengeance belongs to God, but to the civil magistrate, God has given the authority to administer his vengeance. It is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. When a civil government justly punishes a criminal, it is God acting through that government. 
the sword represents the righteous use of deadly force when necessary by the civil government in order to carry out its God-defined function. God gives this sword to the civil magistrate and in effect says to him, use this according to my definition of right and wrong in the Bible to maintain my moral order and to, and to protect my church and all law-abiding citizens. The sword then stands for coercion. Therefore, in order to administer justice and keep the peace, the civil magistrate has been given the power of coercion in the suppression of lawlessness, using God's revealed standard to determine how that power is to be righteously used. The use of the sword is a necessary duty in a fallen world. When a civil government surrenders that responsibility, the lawless will suppress and coerce law-abiding people. When a nation refuses to suppress lawless acts as defined in the Bible, because only the Creator can define what is lawless and lawful, what is criminal, and how a crime is to be justly punished, it is the law-abiding citizen who is suppressed and terrorized as lawlessness reigns supreme. There's parts of Chicago right now where law enforcement won't even go in. They've abandoned their responsibility to protect its people. I think we have sanctuary cities where we just say we're, gonna, we're not going to obey the laws of our nation. These are some troubling times. The reason the state must often use legal coercion to maintain God's moral order is that the only way lawless people will be restrained from lawless acts is by coercing them by legal and sometimes deadly force to stop their lawless activity. And so Paul says in Romans 13 that they don't bear the sword in vain. And if we don't have that, we'll end up with anarchy. We'll end up with civil unrest. And you will have every kind of evil thing there is. So government is good. The magistrate is good. Otherwise, we go back to times where everybody does what's right in their own eyes, or in the days of Noah. And again, the instrument that they wield is the sword. And what about the pacifists? You know, the Anabaptists would say, hey, we're, we're to be pacifists. We're, don't you understand the commandment, the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill or commit murder. How do we reconcile that? Now we're using the sword in capital punishment to punish evildoers. Well, one way that we can reconcile that is you do recognize it as the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, you go down to Exodus 21. Now you begin to see, you know, put this one to death for this, put this one to death for that. What's the distinction? You and I, as private citizens, are not to take the sword into our own hands. God has given that authority to the magistrate. The magistrate has that responsibility, and they're able to use force or the sword, deadly force, to punish evildoers. Let's go to paragraph two. So, authorities of God, it's for his glory, it's for the protection of people. And they wield the sword on his behalf. And they represent him. 
He puts them in place. Paragraph two. Is it, it is lawful for Christians to accept and execute the office of a magistrate when called thereunto, in the management whereof, as they ought especially to maintain justice and peace, according to the wholesome laws of each kingdom and commonwealth, so for that end they may lawfully now under the New Testament wage war upon just and necessary occasions. So here, the writers of the Confession are saying, hey, it's lawful for a Christian to hold public office, to step into the role of magistrate or soldier. It's, the Anabaptists, again, we would see that, I don't know about the Mennonites, but the uh, Amish, they would say, you know, they're pacifists, that this, is, this would be evil for a Christian to do. And it's not. See, the church's role is not to wield the sword. But the magistrate's role is to wield the sword. Now that magistrate, if it's a Christian, is going to be under the local, is going to be under the authority of local church and its elders. Or the same with a politician. It's the church then that should hold that elected official accountable. Do you ever wonder why the churches say when they have a, a politician that sits in their, you know, that's in their church and, and votes for abortion or wants to uh, you know, doesn't want to stop funding of abortion. Why the church doesn't discipline them? See, that's the church's role, is to discipline the magistrate when they do evil. Not to wield the sword. That's the magistrate's role. But in a sense, the church ought to regulate the magistrate that is a part of a local church, if they are. So Christians should be and can be why shouldn't Christians be magistrates? You're going to judge angels. Paul says don't, don't bring a lawsuit to Christians against one another into the public courts to bring shame on God's name. Can't you judge it among yourselves? You're, after all, he says you're going to judge angels. And so many Christians, you know, they claim it's like, well, yeah, personally I'm opposed to this, but I can't bring my my Christian beliefs into public office. Why is it that only the progressives can do that? Hmm? You ever wonder that? Everything I do as a Christian is informed, hopefully, by my biblical worldview and my presuppositions of how I think, how I view the world. They bring theirs into how they govern. Why can't the Christian bring their worldview into government? The founders of our nation sure thought that way. Second Samuel, a couple of quick scriptures here. 23.3, the God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me. He said, He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. So as a Christian, if you're a magistrate, you, you should rule in the fear of God. Psalm 82.3, again, if that's your role, defend the the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. That's a righteous king. That's a righteous magistrate. And think about, you know, ask, where they're asking the questions, the soldiers, to Jesus. Now they've, they've, they've heard the gospel. What should we do? In Luke 3.14, they said to them, do not intimidate anyone or Accuse falsely and be content with your wages. So if they were to be pacifists, wouldn't he just say, 
<laughs> Lay down your weapons. You, you can no longer, now you're a Christian, you can no longer be a soldier. Lay down your weapons. No. Do it righteously. Rule righteously. Proverbs 29, 14. The king who judges the poor with truth, his throne will be established forever. Ezekiel 45, 9. Thus says the Lord God, Enough, O princes of Israel. Remove violence and plundering. Execute justice and righteousness and stop dispossessing my people, says the Lord God. Therefore, O king, Let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Proverbs 20, 26, a wise king sifts out the wicked and brings the threshing wheel over them. And lastly, Proverbs 26, 12, it is an abomination for kings to commit wickedness. For a throne is established by righteousness. So what's the answer? Is it lawful for a Christian to become a civil magistrate? Sure. Is it a good thing? Yes. It's good when the righteous rule. The people rejoice. They may not like you as a Christian, but they'll love your mercy. I often tell our employees, you know, you may not like me as a believer, but you would hate me being your boss as an unbeliever. (laughs) I can guarantee you that. Because God has tempered me a lot. And I have a long ways to go. Okay. So there you have it. Next week we're going to look at um, the third chapter, or the third paragraph, which really is how we as believers, how we should view delegated authority. And, uh, that's, that's really critical. In fact, Jesus, looking at the centurion, when he viewed his, <coughs> how, he, how he viewed authority, he likened it to great faith. It takes great faith to trust God through delegated authority. Okay. The second part of our Sunday night meetings are prayer meetings.